Welcome back to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about media, politics and the politics of the media. I'm still Tom Mills and he's still Dan Hind. How are you doing, Dan? Do you know, I've got a cold, Tom. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do that Hollywood thing of pretending that all's well when it's not because... You shouldn't um, have to. You shouldn't have to. to. This is a safe space, right? This is Mm -hmm. somewhere we can be be honest about our our travails. But um, Mm -hmm. other than that, I'm very well. We've just done a really good interview with Tamsin Cave, which is going to come up later in the show. And I have finished a long essay recently, which has made improved my mood hugely, um, which is looking at the idea of a British digital cooperative. Not just an essay, Dan. It's for a report. Let's give you some due here. You're right. You're right. I am um, making that difficult transition between bourgeois um, member of the intelligentsia to socialist intellectual and Mm. um, this is much more as you say a report of like immediate material consequence uh than an essay which is what a literary a literary exercise um but it's looking at the idea of a publicly owned and democratically structured um development institution working primarily in the digital sector building a public alternative to the sort of tech platforms dominated by American corporations. Um, And the idea is that an incoming government with reforming ambitions, possibly headed by someone like Jeremy Corbyn, um, would want to establish a, a public development agency so that we're no longer captive to a relative handful of corporate developers who frankly aren't really interested in socialism as a social option yeah everybody go and have a read at the report of what is now being called the british digital cooperative i think we talked about the british digital corporation on the show before which was something that was mentioned by corbyn in his metagot speech uh last year so uh dan's been taking some of those ideas and developing them in really interesting ways so where can people find the report then so the report was commissioned by the Next System Project, which is part of the Dem- Democracy Collaborative uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, and you can find the report. I have to go to Washington to get it. No, no, no. Because of, this, because of the Internet, which, yeah. by the way, was developed with public money. Um, because of the Internet, um, you can go and find it at the um, Next System Project website, where you also see a very fetching picture of your author. Um, and it's been co-published by Commonwealth, which has been doing a lot of work on the Green New Deal and has been has been doing work on um, uh, worker ownership and so on. And they very kindly co co-published yeah, it. Speaking of uh, think tanks, oh, nicely done. The Green yes. uh, Yeah, <laughs> I like. I like very good there. Um, yes, that's one of the good think tanks. Um, just we have, not been, we've not done the podcast for seven months, but I am absolutely on fire. <laughs> no, it's good. And the fact that you're barely audible on the recording only adds to the sense of sort of professional slickness. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, so there, there are good think tanks um, who publish the likes of me. Um, but there are also bad think tanks, aren't there? And we had a very interesting conversation with Tamsin Cave of Spinwatch, um, author and activist, journalist, um, about the uh, the lobbying industry and about how it, how it interacts with things like the climate emergency. Why don't we roll tape on that? Because you haven't mentioned the um, to the shout outs that uh, yes, uh, Tamsin he, also failed to mention. Which, again, has, has slipped my mind because... Um, I'm not the slick professional um, that I perhaps should be. So or about your co-host is. So exactly, you you know you caught me with the wind beneath my wings, Tom. Um, so Tamsin wanted to give a shout out to um, a couple of institutions. Uh, one of them, Influence Map, which you can find at uh, influence influencemap.org. Dsmog, which is www.dsmog.co.uk. Uh, and also a shout out to her institutions, spinwatch.org. And so 
that was yeah we that's one thing she wanted us to do before we sign off so let's crack on interview with tamsin Tamsin is, uh, she's an activist and a journalist, and she also has the distinction of, I think, being our third return guest on Media Democracy. So, Tamsin, welcome back to the show. Hello, Dan. Hello, Tom. Hey, yeah. So, Tamsin, we're going to kick off today talking about Extinction Rebellion, about how the media have treated Extinction Rebellion and the wider issues of climate change. But before we forget... The context in which we're doing this is that you're giving a doing a guided walk next week on um, the back office for the climate disaster. So do you want to tell us a bit about the, um, yeah. the walk you've got planned next week? Yeah, I um I I had a rush to the head uh, in the summer when um well I went on the Extinction Rebellion uh, protest in April and then over the summer I did a couple of talks at festivals. Uh, which were great and it was about the climate well the fossil fuel lobby and our and the sort of relationship with uh two activists and i really enjoyed it and i learned a lot because it's not my area so i write about corporate lobbying but i have tended to look at uh the companies that are for for example nhs privatization or that want to do the same for schools um and less about the kind of dirty industries the fossil fuel law um, I've always left that to other people that spin watch. Um, but I did this work over the over the summer and and got quite enthused about it. And then I realised, given that Extinction Rebellion are going to be setting up camp next week, I thought it would be a good idea to get to get let them get to know some of their neighbours in SW1. So I thought I'd do one of our tours around Westminster, which we've done before, of kind of visiting a lot of the different lobbyists. It's like the alternative Westminster tour. So people go visit Parliament and they learn about British democracy and then we take them round the sort of the, the quiet back streets of, of SW1 and tell them all the other players that are involved okay. in British politics. Yeah, so I, I so we basically go around, we go around the sort of trade bodies, uh, the uh, companies themselves that have offices uh, close to Parliament. We'll go around the lobbying agencies that they hire and then crucially the think tanks, the free market think tanks that are all in the little nice little Georgian streets um, uh, around the House of Commons. So I thought I'd do one specifically on some of the players that are basically preventing us from taking any meaningful action to counter the climate emergency. This is the real engine room of our great democracy here, not the... Uh the show that everybody sees well entirely yeah, that, you see that's the thing I'm, I'm quite interested in the mechanics of it because so people talk about the influence of corporations in politics and i don't know, when you sort of dig into it it's a it's just a bo- box of tricks that they've got you know they, there's nothing kind of mysterious or magical about influence it's mm-hmm. it's constructed and it's constructed by a set of players who have a certain amount of money and use a certain box of kind of techniques yeah and 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 that's how they do it and and it doesn't matter whether they're working for the tobacco companies or an oil company or the frackers or whoever it is or private healthcare they pretty much all use the same techniques and so it's quite it's quite good to just show people that it's something that you know this this is the mechanics of it this is how it works these are the people who are doing it and it's and it sort of demystifies it and then you start picking it apart it's exactly that word demystifying isn't it and one of the one of the key instruments they use is this sort of politics of proximity, I think. And you you sort of talking about these these sort of streets around Parliament. I think it really like it emphasises the extent to which just being in the room is key. Yeah, it's a village. I mean, yeah, people. The cliche is the Westminster village, but it operates like a village, and that you know your neighbours. Yeah. And you can just pop over for a cup of tea. Yeah, I think what was quite telling when I, I, because I, I, I wrote a book, Dan, by the way. Uh, but when I wrote the book, I, I did a lot of mapping of the, of the lobbyists, and you, you have these kind of concentric circles, and basically all the expensive SW1 right in the heart of Westminster, um, uh, the lobbyists there. Yeah, I mean, that's where you get the big players with a lot of money and yeah. a lot of clout. And as you get further out, and you get into sort of, 
I mean, basically, well, you get further out and then you get the kind of lobbyists for hire, a lot of the PR agencies, communications agencies. But then you've got your edging into North London and that's where the cheap seats are. That's where all the NGOs are and the, and, and the yeah. like. Yeah. It's, it's, it is geographic. It's definitely, you know, you can tell. It's yeah, like, there isn't a problem in British society which isn't bound up with the housing stroke property market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm doing a talk on the Monday. So I think they're all yeah. they're going to take the streets on Monday. I'm going to do a talk at five o'clock, I think, on Lambeth Bridge. Uh, which will be sketching some of this out and talking specifically about our relationship to this fossil fuel lobby, um, which I'll talk about in a bit. And uh, and then I think on the Wednesday, I'm going to say, I'm going to nail this down now. Wednesday at midday, I'll do yep. a tour, probably meeting on Lambeth Bridge or nearabouts, but there'll be apparently there'll be signage, um, which is good. And I'll do it again on Friday and probably on Saturday when people who are working are going to be coming down. And that, that was quite a lot of information. Do you want to also direct people to your Twitter account so that, you know, people can. Oh, oh, yeah. I, I will be tweeting about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, this is I think it's Cave Tamazin for some weird reason. But um, Tamazin Cave on I'm the only one on Twitter and I will be tweeting it out. Uh, but I think if you go to the Extinction Rebellion um, website. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know, but they seem incredibly organised and they have a really good design team and quite a decent comms thing. And I think they've got a kind of an events, they've got an ENTS team, basically, and oh, it'll be on good. the event thing there. So, yeah. Amazing. Cool. Amazing. And how long, how long a walk is it going to be? Just so I'm I mean, aiming for an hour. Dan gets tired, so. Right. Yeah, I know. You've got little legs. You've got little legs. <laughs> <laughs> just, frankly, just hearing you talk about it, it's very t- I'm aiming for an hour. Right. Aiming for an hour, but I think it probably. I mean, depending on how much, que- how many questions we have, uh, whether it's raining, um, also things like that. I mean, that, yeah, it'll take roughly an hour, an hour and a half, but no longer. Amazing. Basically, I've I, I've had to cut off quite a lot of people, so we are keeping the walk quite short. So, if you are uh, not that able to walk yeah. long distances, uh, it will be. Oh God, it, I mean, I haven't mapped it out. I'm going to say a mile most. Um, it, okay. it really is the the sort of the, the just the surrounding streets of Parliament. So it means that so that sort of tells us something very important, doesn't it, about how concentrated these players are. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, I suppose to some extent, it, it, it sort of models on the Square Mile in London, where again, like financial power is an intensely social form of power. Um, people people want to be in the same place. Yeah, uh, it's so true actually, because if people have this sort of sense of business as being this kind of completely rational actor, you know, where, which in a very removed sense, you think, well, why wouldn't they just all relocate to like? I don't know, like Reading or anywhere else where like property right. would be cheaper. But of course, every company wants to have for advertising, for lobbying, for schmoozing, like the status their office in such and such a place, don't they? Um, yeah. Like those crazy offices they have like around the West End, you know, where it's just like they've got these huge empty halls. Like I saw one the other day, which was for like for Magnums. And it, but it was like a um, sort of Apple showroom for Magnum. What, Magnum ice cream? Like the, uh, yeah, it's like... <laughs> this is crazy yeah you know, you know like, like the apple shots it's just completely empty and white um yeah. so they got one of them like slap bang in the you know in the middle of the west end it's just yeah. it's kind of insane but um it's yeah i'm not saying they're doing any sinister lobbying stuff there i just you know i'm just agreeing with your point about you know the social nature of yeah business power. Yeah, it's, i mean it's intensely practical i mean it, it, it's 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 just practical because you know they're not they're not having the odd meeting with these politicians. It is we talk about, you know, they are surrounding the the political system with this kind of information environment. So yeah. it's it is direct meetings, but it is also, you know, there are seminars, there are private roundtable dinners, there are discussions, yeah. there are this, that, and the other conferences, blah blah blah. And so you need to have an office. So if you've got, for example, uh, and I'm going to say PwC, I'm not 100% confident that they, but they will, they'll have a dining room where they will host private dinners and they will get the minister along or the permanent secretary or whatever. Um, and they are, you know, spitting distance from Whitehall or, 
you know, if you are um, a, a, a think tank, you want to be able to get the minister on your platform to sit with the corporate sponsor, because that's basically what you're selling. And the minister, yeah. you know, they're busy people and they might only be able to nip out for half an hour, but they can do that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. But actually, get, yeah, get, getting them out of London is, is not is practically speaking an impossibility most of the time. Um, but you're you're right if you're if you're literally down the road. And also, there's this sort of this is very human sense, isn't there? That as people become familiar to you, um, they become more socially acceptable. So if you see the same people floating about and you exchange a pleasantry with them or you you know you 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 share a joke at the at the coffee stand or whatever the next time you see them you're that much less suspicious you're much that much less likely to sort yeah. of shut down they're and not a stranger anymore exactly not being a stranger is like a massive part of human interaction you know yeah. we can do terrible things to strangers we do terrible things to strangers every day you know we wander past people who are homeless and we don't actually give it that much thought because they're strangers but once you know someone your your the dynamic does really change and i think building that sense of familiarity builds a sense that oh these are consequential people these are people that i can't just dismiss um, yeah they are part- just consequential people it, it, i mean there's everything bound up in that because it's it's the consequential ideas as well i mean it's right. it's, it's it's i mean i have this and i'm i'm i think I'll, I'll probably include it on the tour is that everybody's heard of tufton street where all the free market think tanks are and the climate change deniers and the you know the free market ideologues they're they're all on this well a lot of them are on this one street called tufton street yeah. and, and i it would be Which, great by the, way, by the way does sound like a children's animation from the 70s right? yeah yeah <laughs> it'll be like all the squirrels <laughs> it's camel green or tigwell or whatever yeah, yeah. tufton street um they and i i think you know it'd be nice to try and imagine what it would be like if it was stuffed full of people who are imagining a new economy or what a green new deal would look like or you know um any number of uh, yeah. uh, progressive policies were there right next to the House of Parliament. It would be mm. quite an so interesting thing. Nationalised Tufton Street is our first, that's our first port call. I would start there, yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, so no, as you mentioned right. Tufton Street, uh, are there any fossil fuel, um, do you want to start with that, that street, like fossil, are there fossil fuel um, lobbyists around that area? There are, yeah. I mean, you could so the the tour is going to take it it's got not got many stops but i'm trying to cover a lot of ground uh so we've got in terms of some of the industries you've got all the biggies uh cars we cover aviation i'm going to cover uh sort of heavy industry uh oil and gas um and then we're going to try it, yeah, and then when we go to the think tanks, they sort of muddle all these things up. And so they will be putting out papers on, uh, yeah, aviation policy and why we need uh, expansion of airports or, uh, you know, any number of things, why we need to frack. So they are, I mean, they're cool think tanks, but I, I tend to see them as, they are, like, they are lobbyists for hire. They're not that distinct from the commercial lobbying agencies that that you know like the what was bell pottinger is the most famous one which now doesn't exist but they're not really any different from that so they're commercial entities that that are paid to promote certain policy positions by uh corporations and Um, and so who are the who are the ones to watch in this space then i I think there are some interesting ones the institute of economic um uh, affairs which i mean just because it's the oldest of the Uh, set up in the 1950s Um, and they continue I mean they've done they did a lot of kind of climate change denial stuff uh, quite a few decades ago um, but they're still at it now so you've got um, there was a piece recently by Kate Andrews of the IEA which was in it ran in one of the newspapers City AM in London uh, where she's having a go at Extinction Rebellion and uh, Greta Thunberg and and the like. So they they have a kind of a history of working for uh, uh, fossil fuel companies yeah. and, and putting out disinformation. I think what's interesting to note about someone like the IEA, though, is that um, 
so they have a kind of a dual role. One is this propaganda for uh, corporate interests, which they have been incredibly effective at. So they are they have a a, a huge influence in the media, um, uh, and they appear on Question Time and the like. Although that might start to change now, I don't know. But the other the other key role that they have is that they are this sort of networking group, and that they connect um, politicians to corporations. So corporations will pay them money, and then they will set up, for example, a private dinner, which they did recently with one of their funders, which is BP. So BP got to sit down with one of the Brexit ministers to talk about who knows what because it was entirely private. But we did get the list of attendees. But mm-hmm. it was it was a dinner that was set up by the IEA. So they have this kind of private role. Yeah. Of, of connecting politics to, to um, corporate interests um, but then they have this very public role which is this propaganda role um, and do they still do they would do they produce they presumably they produce reports to order as well about how smoking is good for you or how they admitted it I mean they admitted as much didn't they because there was that recent sting by um, unearthed where they uh, got Mark Littlewood who's the director of the IA on tape basically flogging access and influence to uh, somebody posing as a US agribusiness, I think it was. I can't remember the details, but yeah. So they are in the business of selling influence. I yeah. get it. Um, I get it. I mean, uh, in, just before we kind of move on, one of the things is interesting is to me when we talk about, like, like you say, the Westminster Village and how much of it is on any given day going to be populated by lobbyists. I wonder what kinds of intangible effects this has on journalistic culture, because when you look at like high ranking journalists who cover politics, they seem to have like naturalized an incredibly pro corporate point of view. And and I can't help but I can't help but think that that's in part down to the fact that there's so many of the people that they meet are extremely plausible lobbyists for corporate interests so that when. You know, when a BBC journalist sort of looks incredulous at the idea of, a, you know, Corbyn's proposals to, I don't know, nationalise one of the major util- utilities or whatever it happens to be, I yeah. kind of wonder whether that's just just a kind of function of their of their kind of pattern of life that they just don't meet socialists ever. <laughs> I mean, it's just like yeah. it's completely. I think, I, think it, I take your point. Uh, but I think it is more nuanced than that. In that, um, see, something like the IEA, I think it is. It's it's slightly sort of overinflated it's 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 significance i mean they do it and we do it and it has been a very significant player but until recently it was out in the wilderness and i i actually think that a lot of journalists who are working would see them as kind of pretty extreme in in the stuff that they were putting out they were outliers i mean the fact that they are now in the heart of government is concerning but i don't see it as a win i mean if you listen to any of their podcasts which i have i don't necessarily recommend it but it's i mean it's quite interesting to hear them discuss what is in a sense their failure and it's a failure to to influence public opinion in a way that they wanted to so you haven't got this kind of um transformation of british society into a free market you know kind of pro-business society the conversation i think they have i mean i and i think they would admit that they have lost control of the public debate particularly around climate change so i i think i'm not underestimating their significance but i don't want to sort of give them credit for for something that i don't think that they have done i think there are limitations to their influence and i think they would recognize that before most people actually no sure and i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to pin it all on on just the iea i guess it's more a more generalized sort of social media which has its moderate and its extreme elements if you like but which, yes. which is sort of overwhelmingly pro-corporate and overwhelmingly pro-privilege yeah and i think you will find that now i mean there are there is a new breed of right of sort of right-wing think tanks that have um sprung up since well, i suppose the sort of cameron departure yeah a lot of these people went into these think tanks and things like onward uh which <laughs> i, I, I only actually i don't know where I, I literally came across that one a couple of 
I was oh I tell you where it was it was the Evening Standard published this extraordinary list of like the most powerful and most influential people in London and the thing which caught my eye was that they had a one called Equality Activists which was headlined by like Harry and uh, Meghan Markle so that was like the leading London's leading equality activist but then they had the political <laughs> activist side and that that guy was that guy was in their like leading political activist what What's his name, Tenzin? I've forgotten. I, I can't. To um, be honest, I, I should know more about them than I do because I think they are really interesting in that, in that if you are, um, I don't know, self-respecting corporation, but if you are somebody who doesn't want to be associated with, for example, the IEA and its particular kind of stance, I mean, uh, the the problem is, and it's worth saying, although everybody knows it, is that they none of these none of them declare who their funders are. So it's actually incredibly difficult to say. Uh, who's funding whom Um, so presumably BP doesn't care about funding the IEA because nobody was going to find out about it Um, but uh, and and likewise with a lot of these new think tanks is that they're it's very difficult to know who's who's funding them but you can you kind of get a general sense so um, I think they are interesting in that um, if you were, for example, a, a, a Google or an Uber or a Facebook or whatever, you would go to one of these newer yeah. Think tanks, and I'm not. Mm. I, I mean, I'm not saying that they don't fund something like the IEA or the Centre for Policy Studies. They probably fund a ton of people um, for different purposes. But you would go to one of these um, newer uh, think tanks like Onward. You would work with, for example, one of the big, powerful uh, lobbying agencies for hire who would advise them who is going to be the best person to present your case, which think tank suits your brand and you know will get you in front of the right minister or whatever and I think there needs to be far more scrutiny of the relationships between these newer think tanks and some of the yeah the kind of um uh, particularly the tech interests I think that's yeah really interesting to look that's interesting like to think about okay them going to the lobbyists and then the lobbyists recommending think tanks because I think it comes back to Dan's question about like the, the wider sort of milieu that say BBC journalists move in because it's not just lobbyists and things like that. it's like you know the PRs as well and the people moving from journalism into PR and back again they're all broadly part of the same kind of clique aren't they I mean I know there are lots of different factions but I mean they're all in their own ways like corporate power brokers so I guess that's that's the sort of broader milieu that Dan was talking about in terms of like you know that that broadly co- pro-corporate policy and then when you get down to the granular level like you say you've, you've got these different kind of yeah uh factions yeah. of the corporate elite haven't you and different kinds yeah. of political projects which are sort of fostered in different think tanks and then aligned to different political actors as well don't they like yeah. uh you know like they, they had policy exchange was close to cameron and ippr now was i guess moved to the left of the labor party sort of. but um yeah anyway um sorry yeah, go on. I, I think i interrupted you it's worth restating, Tom, and, and I should is that the 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 um, networks between corporate lobbyists, think tanks, and journalism are. I mean, they're 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 a triangle, and I think I I might have talked about it in the last time I was on the podcast of um, having the pleasure of going to the what was it the Telegraph party at the, the Tory party conference a couple of years ago, and you see them all in the room. So it's journalists, uh, uh, politicians and uh, lo- corporate lobbyists and the think tank lot. And they're all, you know, much for much this and they all and that's where you get the revolving door. So a lot of journalists will go into these um, corporate PR agencies, corporate lobbying agencies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's there's a huge amount of kind of turnover between the the different aspects. I mean, that is that is a dynamic that I think is underemphasized on the left and that we we spend a lot of time thinking about media power. We think a lot about like the power of media institutions, but we don't, we think less about the forms of, of social power and informal um, uh, influence that are brought to bear on journalists as a class. Um, and, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'm always astonished that, that, the lobbyist is left out of the story a lot of the time you know you get these lobbying scandals but there are and I'm trying to think of an example now but a, there are a lot of cases where I just think well why aren't you pointing out that um oh no somebody was quoting Alex Dean the other day who is a Tory commentator but, but also happens to be a, a massive corporate lobbyist yeah um, and and I was like well 
I think I, somebody was saying, oh, he's a lawyer. And I was thinking, well, he might be a lawyer, but he, he works for a massive lobbying agency as well with a huge number of corporate clients. So he's not a disinterested observer or, a, you know. He, right. And he's, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Like, it's almost like it's it'd be a bit rude to talk about money in this circumstance. We have to be talking about ideas. That's kind of like the response of the IAA when they get people sort of like who funds them. It doesn't matter who funds us, just, you know, what's important yeah. is uh, the, the intellectual ideas which we're, we're producing, you know. We, but it, it just sounds like a version of that um, journalist thing of no one tells me what to write, you know, which yeah. is, you know, well, anyway. And I'm always just... I mean, the, in, yeah. the one that bugs me is Alistair Campbell. He works for Portland, which is one of the biggest lobbying agencies in the country. Yeah, the biggest, and and it's never mentioned. And I, yeah. I it's extraordinary. Yeah. Given some of that, I think like I think it comes back to what you were saying, though, Samson, about like how that there is, and you done really that, that there's that there's a public part of this sort of power structure that we all see, like via the BBC or whatever, and then there's the backroom stuff. So like just intuitively like you know people think they understand well we we tend to think we understand what's going on in the public the, the more public facing stuff so that just kind of makes sense but um it does it does seem strange that, like this kind of stuff doesn't get brought up there's a sort of version of there's a version of corruption that you're allowed to talk about isn't there but like the yeah, the, exactly the, right. the, yeah. the whole the whole process of sort of you know this kind of like this le- the kind of legal form of like political corruption it's just sort of it's almost like it'd be a bit rude to talk about that you know it's socially right. awkward yeah it's socially yeah. awkward everybody's everybody's implicated right yeah. It, yeah, it, like if you've got like brown paper envelopes full of cash going to elected politicians from bad men you know for like oligarchs right people get that that's a scandal you get jack straw saying yeah it gives 50, 55 grand a day and i'll see what i could do right yeah. that sort of seems a bit shady but the fact that everybody is going to these working breakfasts and um you know having getting tips about what's you know what's hot and what's not and everyone's sort of trading favors in this sort of in this sort of milieu it's like everybody is either in on it or wants to be in on it because it's how you get ahead and it's yeah. like if you turned around and said, well, ask Campbell, you're not just a disinterested citizen, are you? You're actually a, you are a, a major lobbyist. And you're an operator. You wouldn't get invited back. You know no. what I mean? You just like that's not the sort of thing you raise in polite company or on air sort of thing. Yeah, it's more than that. I mean, well, I mean, we've been I think I got called a conspiracy theorist in Parliament, which was it, which was exciting. Um, well, you didn't really you, anyone to you don't seem nuts, you know. You seem a bit nuts if you do that. I mean, what struck me recently there was that story about um, Owen Patterson, who's a MP, Brexiteer, um, and there was a the, the bog standard lobbying story in the Guardian. They broke it, which was that he was found to be lobbying for some company that he was being paid, I don't know, forty grand a year by. Um, but it, it sort of came down to whether he lobbied using house of commons notepaper <laughs> so it's the, basically what we object to that is, would be unacceptable you know, it's literally the stationery is a problem not not whether um we have this entire kind of apparatus in place that yeah. Yeah. Uh, is corrupting our democracy um it's whether yeah he used it, yeah, he used no, I, I think you're so right. It says about the uh, the conspiracy theory thing, because I and I think this is a pro- sort of a problem. I mean, particularly on the left, actually, it's that when people, you know, when we started and you were talking about the sort of the mechanics and the actual, you know, concrete stuff that was going on in in the way that like corporate power um, kind of shapes politics. Like, there's some sort of sense that on the left, like talking about that is somehow a distraction from like the real version of of, of corporate power, as if that exists somewhere or exists in the abstract. And it's like, well, no, this this is actually this is know, concretely yeah, this... how 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 corporations get their way. This is this is what they do. I mean, yeah. obviously, they control investment and and all kinds of other things as well that the left is more used to talk, talking about. But I, I think that I think this is a real blind spot for for the left is understanding you know corporate power in exactly the way that you've been describing it. and then like moving from the sort of abstraction of okay you know corporations control politics to not just like I think the one that people at least in America have sort of understood is like them sort of having locked down Congress you know by funding political campaigns or whatever yeah. but you know in a way this is some this is more than that isn't it yeah no um 
Yeah, I think in a, in a sense, I mean, it's so much worse in America because of the issue of money. But it's um, so it's kind of easier to see and uh, it stinks so much more yeah. than it seems to. Well, it is, isn't it? I think America is just a much more straightforwardly transactional society in a, in a way. It's like people just pay money to get things in a, in a way that is in a quite unembarrassed way. And I think that does feed into the way that politics operates as a sort of series of transactions yeah. whereas here there's much more of a kind of not shamefacedness but a sort of awkwardness about how one goes about sort of cashing in on your public position or your access or whatever it happens to be or whether or whether it's just easier to see in the, in the states i mean they do have some transparency laws that, that that are significantly better than the ones we have here so you can see the lobbyists you can they mm. they have to register they have to say how much they're spending they have to say who they are and whether they worked in congress or you know whatever before so you you've got a lot more transparency i think one of the useful things that well one of i don't know how useful it's going to be but i'm one of the things that i'm I think might be helpful to people here because we do not have a cottage industry when it comes to influence and lobbying here, but it is very difficult to see. And it is, it's kind of part of this, yeah, this kind of, um, when you say we don't have a cottage industry, you mean it's a very, it's a very big operation. Oh yes. Huge. I mean, it's what yeah. it is a sort of finger in the air job, but it's what they estimate, guesstimate two billion pounds that it's worth. I mean, um, it, it doesn't really matter about the, 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 the point that I'm, uh, I wanted to make was, I think one of the useful things that you could do, or that I have found useful in trying to actually get my head around it, is if you go back, and I think, and Tommy, you'll know about this, but if you go back to some of the original uh, lobby groups, the ones that engaged in massive pop propaganda campaigns against the kind of public interest by businesses, then you can actually, because they haven't changed much in 100 years, you can actually start to to see what we've got now much more clearly. So if you go back to like the original business propaganda group, which was called National Propaganda, which was set up literally, I mean, it's almost the week, 100 years ago um, today. I mean, it, they had their first meeting in August 1919. Um, and they very explicitly uh, had went on a, a, a dual their dual purpose, which was this crusade for capitalism to persuade yeah. the public that it was the best thing since sliced bread. And the second one was to counter subversion, as they saw it, within industry and society. So yeah. To, yeah. Um, to, you know, spying on activists and pacifists and communists and socialists and to undermine any sort of opposition group. So this this dual aim and it literally hasn't changed in 100 years. You can track this now. Um, within all these organisations and all these lobby groups and these um, trade bodies now, yeah, um, and and it, I, yeah, so I find that quite useful, and I find it useful also. I was thinking recently about the uh, one of the major lobbying groups in the US, which is called the National Association of Manufacturers, which has been going forever. Um, and if you look at the history of them, it's it's again quite enlightening in that you can see. Like in the 1930s, when they were faced with um, this, you know, it, it was the, the New Deal. Everybody in the country hated them. It was post-crash. They were absolutely loathed by the public. And they went on this massive propaganda push for capitalists, yeah. basically, and for their own interests. And yeah. at the time, they were spending it was a huge budget of like a, a, a million dollars and back in the 19, some 1930, early 30s mm -hmm. um, and they were spending half of their income just on propaganda activities so if you think back then you know that that, that was a really significant amount of their what they right. had and a significant amount of money just to defeat the the new deal which they didn't yeah. um, and then you think that they're, they're at it now nice yeah. parallel um, is that they have just started lobbying uh, um, Congress and Senate against the Green New Deal. Now, how mm. much money are they spending half of their income again? I mean, what kind of what kind of budget are they throwing at it? But it's this isn't this isn't an add-on that these organisations do. It's utterly central to, to right. what it's they do. It's their raison d'etre, yeah. And I think and we, underestimate, we underestimate the efforts to which that they go to, or the efforts to which the the the, the extent to which that they notice. For something like Extinction Rebellion, because right, that's this is really interesting. Yeah, let's talk the, about talk a bit about this. Yeah, the tendency on the on the left, and and because we are consistently told that you are wasting your time, or that no you know, point, there's no point doing it. There's no <laughs> point doing it. Stop doing it. There's no point. Yeah, 
I mean, there was a there was an editorial in um uh, in uh, if you ever read Capex, which is the right <laughs> center for policy studies, it's their um online uh, thing new site whatever lots of uh, blog terms and blog it's the blog yes it's a blog but they had it they had a, a piece recently um which the headline was was extinction rebellion are wasting our time and their own which i thought <laughs> 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 that's doubly uh, bad wasting Right, so it's this takedown of Extinction Rebellion, and we do we really? It, this is the line. Do we really need more protests to make people aware of the risks of climate change? Hmm, do we? Um, uh, and but, right, so they're just like, ah, oh, just it's a complete waste of time. But then you go to something like the Airport Operators Association. So this is the trade body for the um, powerful aviation industry in this country, right? They've got an annual conference coming up in November. And uh, it's the the conference is dubbed uh, it's called Airports for a Changing World, um, and they're not talking about climate change. Well, not in that sense, anyway. Um, and the number one issue that is under discussion at their annual conference is when everybody gets together, is the impact of the climate change protest. And so right. that is the number one key thing that is being debated by the aviation industry. Oh, do we really need another process? <laughs> like, right, 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 right. Time. So it's, it's, I think there is, yeah, there's a kind of extent to which, particularly on an individual level, we, people can think, eh, it doesn't make any difference. I'm just yeah. one person. And, and I think to, if, if people understood the kind of, the, 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 the extent to which that they are noticed by industries. I mean, I remember back when um, Occupy was outside St. Paul's um, and uh, the tax haven crowd got together. So it was all the, you know, they the flew in from the Cayman Islands and you had the accountants there and the lawyers and whatever. And there was a guy who, he was a lobbyist for the Cayman Islands and he said, you know, I've just been through, he was presenting to this huge conference of tax haven lobbyists. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and he walked he said I walked through Occupy the other day I put on my leather jacket walked through Occupy got loads <laughs> of leaflets or whatever started making a few jokes about you know how crap it all was in Occupy and then he turned around and he said but it's not funny anymore the Telegraph are covering this uh you know ordinary people are sitting up and taking notice of this so this is an entire conference that was that was brought together because of Occupy and yeah. I I don't think protesters realize the extent to which that they scare people but they should because sorry i'm now on a rant but it's if you go back to national propaganda the reason why that happened in august 1919 is because the year before was universal suffrage they just give it i mean the electorate just tripled you you had suddenly had the threat of popular genuine democracy right and what did they do they launched a propaganda yeah campaign against it and so i think it's trying to flip it on its head and say these people exist because of the power of democracy and if only we knew yeah and as you say like that 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 rhetoric of hey what you're doing is useless what you're doing is immature what you're doing is like we already know you know that whole rhetoric of of trying to diminish or you know to minimize um popular expressions of basically of political agency that whole rhetoric is the flip side of the private conversations where they are losing their minds about it yeah you know yeah. they'll be saying I mean, they're public, lose their minds in public are they they're not no, gonna... exactly. the more they're saying oh guys we already know this in public yeah. the more they're saying in private guys these people start to cotton on and we are losing our social license we're losing our ability to operate here and we need to like we need to up our game and obviously you know what the what the lobbyists are doing is they're always selling right they're always closing they're always saying to their clients you need to give us more money the threat is getting more serious right it's inseparable from their sales pitch but at the same time as you say they are they are acutely aware and the people ultimately who pay for them are acutely aware that what happens with things like Extinction Rebellion or things like Occupy changes the terrain on which they operate. And yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Our job is to kind of wade through that that rhetoric of of dismissal and just keep you going. Even you even see it in the the business literature actually, like because I 
to teach uh, some business uh, um, at Aston. And if you read the textbooks, there's a sort of sense, you know, explain to the business students, oh, you know, business has this license to, to operate. But, you know, the danger is that, you know, social norms can change and campaigns can influence us and regulators can respond and X, Y and Z. So, you know, e even just at the level of business, before you get into their sort of collective propagandists, they're very conscious of the ways that, you know, social norms can kind of suddenly swing against them. So, of course, they're going to be aware. Yeah. I, yeah. I was wondering, um, Tamsin, if you could talk a bit um, before we finish about like what what you would expect um, a six from rebellion to be on the receiving end of from 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 these interests so if, if they're if they're meeting and they're thinking and they're strategizing um, what, what do you expect that their what, what has their response been so far from your from your perception and what do you think extinction rebellion can can expect yeah I mean just I mean extinction rebellion would be in a much better position to talk about this than me. I've only just started looking at it, but it's, um, I mean, I, I initially thought they were going to go on the hypocrisy thing because that's the thing that's always thrown at you, which is, is, is it's what It's kind of what they did with Occupy, isn't it? Oh, it's exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. what Occupy. With Louise Minch when she was on a programme. Yeah, said, yeah, I remember that. It was, have I got news to you, I think. It was, them yeah. with their coffees. If you buy a cup of coffee from Starbucks or have a smartphone or buy a tent, then you're not in any position to criticise the capitalist system. <laughs> she was given short shrift. Um, but there's been less of that. And actually, um, did you read the, the Aranovich's piece last week in the Times about Greta? Oh, the... I, I miss Arrow's uh, <laughs> I know you're a big fan. Yeah, I am a huge fan. <laughs> We're mutual admirers, actually. Yeah. Well, she, she, uh, no, he goes on about, I mean, it, it's patronising. So that's one thing that everybody's oh, really? had. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, she said, oh, Greta, it's like Greta's funny in her earnestness. It's really kind of, oh, bless. She's so, she's so earnest. Um, but then, and then he does a funny thing, which is, um, she, her, basically her crime, he says, is to exaggerate um, the problem the consequences. So he says, uh, the science says we're not heading for extinction, but for nasty times with millions of avoidable deaths. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> Perfectly acceptable. Maybe, maybe the German invasion of Russia yeah, wasn't... Yeah, there's no need to be alarmist about these things. <laughs> no, no. That's basically what he's saying. Don't be alarmist. The thing that they're desperate to avoid is, and I think... Extinction Rebellion is probably onto something here when they say that you just need to get 3.5% of the population to mobilise. You don't need everybody. You just need enough. And and it's desperate to stop it gaining momentum. So anything that can stop, then there must be a tipping point. And I, you know, I haven't studied theories of change enough to know where that is or how they, how you get there or how you stop it. But um. That's what they're desperate to do. So um, the other thing that I, you see them doing, which is uh, equating Extinction Rebellion with the kind of, you know, they want, in, in its extreme, it's Kate Andrews saying, you know, they want to take us back to the Dark Ages. But it is this sense of we are on the side of the ordinary people who want to fly and yeah. have a nice time. Yeah. Um, and they are not. They are, they are, they are not. So, I mean, basically, what it boils down to, and I think, is is something that you know you see from every, you've seen for decades, um, which is the, I hate the fact that they use military metaphors, but the divide and conquer, yeah, strategy, which is, you know, it was set out. There was a, there was a lot in the 90s when they were facing environmental, lots and lots of environmental protests, and so you have people working out that if you separate your activists or your 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 opposition into different quadrants, so you'll have yeah. the, you you know you have your extremists on one end, you have your realists on the other end, and you have your persuadables in the middle. And what you want to do is you want to move the middle towards the realists and then persuade the realists to basically say, agree with industry. So you can kind of engage them in continuous dialogue about how you've got the solutions. Yeah, it's all yeah. about forward full solutions. And, you know, no, we need to do this. No carbon capture and storage, no biofuels are for aviation. And, you know, uh, no, we need carbon pricing. And we have been doing this for decades, these full solutions. Um, that basically have been revolving around the mainstream debate for yeah. years. Means yeah. I've now got extinction rebellion. Um, with, on the other end, which you know they are, it, it's all about isolating them. 
yeah. so that people don't align with them, they align with the realists. Um, but, I mean, Monbiot is very good on this, and he, he talks about, you know, it's not... It, it, he came out with a great phrase recently, which was, it was all about um, scientific sense. You know, it's about the, the realism lies with the science, and the science is on side with the Extinction Rebellion lot, not with these, not not with whatever's revolving around in the mainstream dialogue debate. So it's all about isolating Extinction Rebellion so people don't mm-hmm. join them and create that 3.5% that's needed to, to tip that's it. interesting, yeah. There was a, I read an article this morning in the FT, a column in the FT, which I think was maybe, da- you know, maybe downstream from this in an interesting way. Um, most stuff is most stuff is if you can if you read most stuff in the context of a dry and rule campaign then that's it sits yeah so this I can't remember his name he's a he's a regular columnist in the FT and he writes a kind of travel lifestyle column right. and he's talking about how um, how things like Uber and Airbnb and cheap travel uh, cheap air travel had create you know allowed quote middle class or ordinary people it give them a kind of a millionaire lifestyle um, that was was under threat because of things like Extinction Rebellion, things like, um, you know, um, regulation of um, these platforms and so on. And he was essentially saying, you know, the rich are always going to be OK. The people who are going to suffer are people like you, basically, you know, yeah. people who need the FT, like the, you know, the, the well healed are going to be the ones who are on the sharp end of all this social change. Um, and it was, yeah. He's speaking, to the, he's speaking to the FT audience, right? So he's making a distinction between the uber rich, the, the you know the 0.1 percent or whatever, and the, yeah. the up, basically the upper middle class. Exactly, yeah. And everybody in the upper middle class is convinced that they're basically middle class going on like poor. Um, yeah, but it's extraordinary. I think there's an interesting. I mean, it, it blew me away when I I heard because I had a lot of talks about climate change. Um, when I was doing these talks uh, in festivals, uh, I learned so much over the summer. If you can get to a festival where there's a speaker's tent and they're covering climate change, go because it's brilliant. Right. It was like really, it's like if you're at Glastonbury and there's all this fun happening somewhere else, then you go and sit and get depressed for two days <laughs> in a tent. <laughs> it's it amazing. It changed my life. It did. I mean, I went out into the festival as well, but it was um, extraordinary the people I heard. But there was a guy. Uh, God, I don't know. tell you what. It gives a whole new complexion to the idea of political canvassing. Uh, oh canvassing. God, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, my point, my point is that there was a guy speaking. I can't for the life of me remember his name, and yeah, I know it. But he did a really good talk on aviation, um, and it was about is that statistic that there are, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something like 15% of the population takes 70% of flights. It's a very small number that are creating the vast problem here. Yeah. 50% of people in this country don't take flights in a year, take no flights. So you are not talking about the middle class. You're not talking about a lot of people. You are talking about this upper echelon that take four flights a year or that fly for business. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Which those people, yeah, those people are definitely being, they're being targeted with the idea that um, they're, um, their purchase on uh, a kind of globalized consumption lifestyle is under threat from um, things like Extinction Rebellion. Because, as you say, it might be like it, it's only probably 10% of the population who are in that sort of precariously rich space. Um, but that's, yes. they're, they're an important demographic to, to sort of win round. And you can see. You can see that that they do constitute a prize. Like you know, they, the the you know, the the real powers need them on side, really. I don't think. I mean, do you need? To, I don't know. I, I don't, do you need to win them round that fifteen percent? I don't know. I, mean, I don't think from a from a point of extinction rebellion. No, I don't think you do. But I think if you're trying to maintain the status quo, I think you have to solidify your support amongst that layer. Yeah. Um, and by telling them that actually what. You know what um, a Green New Deal means is the the, the dark ages. Um, it's obviously nonsense, but I think it does. I think it's an, it's an important argument for them to win in that in that social space. Well, you, the interesting thing about aviation is it is it's about the only one where the, it's the Achilles heel because it's the only one where there isn't a technological fix. 
Right. I mean, the latest ways that they're going to use biofuels, which would take what's that, that report? They take the like the size of Belgium to to actually you'd have to convert to biofuels in order to actually create enough fuel. But we couldn't the, do that to Belgium. <laughs> yeah. See why we have to take on Belgium exactly? Although looking back at what they did in the Congo, I mean, maybe it's sort of reparation time. Um, <laughs> Cool. Okay. But, but I think it, I just want to say I think it's worth pointing out that there's an awful lot of stuff is, is that um, aviation is the one where it less is really important. So fewer flights is really important. But the positive message of the Green New Deal, which I'm not completely on top of and I'm not the best person to speak about, but it is about it is a win win. It is about, you know, kind of it's it's better energy efficiency. It's more yeah. jobs. It's better, you know. It's cleaner energy. It's cleaner streets. It's better housing. It's all those things which. It's more human connection as well, right? It's like it's the end of the human recession. That's like I think this idea of degrowth is is unhelpful because what we what we want is to grow our potential for human connection, and we can do that without f- flying about the place. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, yeah, I'm, I heard this climate, Kevin Anderson, I think is his name, uh, climate scientist at, at uh, one of the festivals, and he was just, he blew my mind with what he was saying about the science um, and about his decision not ever to fly. Right. On that slightly depressing note, Tamsin, <laughs> um, remind our listeners where they can find you next week, because you are basically on tour. And this is a chance for our readers to to meet and greet and get to get to sit to hear, hear what you've got to say in person. So this is a great rare opportunity um, for the what I like to think of as Kate Bush of lobbying studies is going to be playing live. <laughs> where are you? Where, where are you going to be next week? All right, thank you for the build-up. I I, t- I tend to see it more as a. I mean, there are so many people that are going to be down at XR who are so expert on so many things that it's a shared learning experience, to be honest. But I'm going to take some people around. Um, I'm going to do a talk five o'clock on Lambeth Bridge. Yeah. Uh, and then we are doing tours definitely Wednesday at twelve o'clock and. Friday at 12 o'clock and I'm going to say Saturday at 12 o'clock as well that would be amazing well, think... you've said it so you have to do it I, I have to do it now don't I no I, I am going to do it I want to do it but there, there might be other ones in between so but I would encourage everybody to come down to XR because it's I mean there's so much going to be happening and so many brilliant people speaking and so many things to learn and have fun and uh you know it's it's a good thing and you get to sit in the street and, yes Uh, Now, before we go, you and um, your co-author, Andy Andy Rao, have have written the definitive book on the lobbying industry in the UK. Um, Tell us, it's it's called, it's a word in your ear, isn't it? No. (laughs) (laughs) It was a while ago, it's true. Uh, It's called A Quiet Word. A Quiet Word in Your Ear. No. no, not in your quiet ear. Word in your quiet ear. And the air in quiet. Okay, so okay. it's a word in your ear. No, it's not. A quiet word. It's in, paper, it's in paperback. That's right, isn't it? It is. It's called A Quiet Word, Lobbying Crony Capitalism, Broken Politics in Britain. Brilliant. Um, and that's available from all good bookshops. And I yeah. thoroughly and recommend that, that is the nuts and bolts of how lobbying works. Our readers are obviously interested in the media, but I, I genuinely think you can't entirely get your head around what the media are up to unless you understand this, this sort of hidden infrastructure of influence peddling um, that interacts both with the political establishment, but also with with the media establishment, too. So um, it is a vital supplement to a, a kind of mature understanding of, of, of our current situation. Um, Tamsin, thanks so much for, for joining us this week. It's been an absolute pleasure as ever. Um, and well, to the what we're calling the Juice Club, people who've been on the show twice. Any reason why? 
And juice, because it means two. In oh, when... not juice, as in... Oh, oh, I was thinking juice. orange juice as well. No, I don't know where, where Dan was going with this, really. It's, um, <laughs> I, as I said it, I was like, why am I, why am I even going down that road? People won't understand that. Anyway, but I did it. Um, I, think I, I, think, I think we got away with it, lads. <laughs> <laughs>